Hey there, Scott. Hi, Garrett. Some of these conversations we're having are beginning to trickle up, if you will, into the higher echelons of arts organizations. Isn't that exciting? It is. And you know what happens when trickle up happens to the heads of arts organizations? What's that? The effects start to trickle down. Oh, let's get into it. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, True and Real Stories from the Fringes of Classical Music. We have a really excellent guest today for this third week of Black History Month, a local composer to the Twin Cities named Damien Strange. And at the end of this opus, uh, we're actually going to get to hear an excerpt from an opera he wrote about not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther King Jr.'s mother. So uh, we have that to uh, look forward to in this opus. But first and foremost, Scott, I know you're not feeling well. I'm going to try to do most of the talking today if that's all right. Well, if you don't, if you want to avoid a coughing fit, then yeah, you talk. <laughs> well, uh, so uh, back uh, on Opus 37 of Triloquy, uh, we had Sam Bergman in as a guest, and we kind of get into some of the meat as far as what's happening um, at the Minnesota Orchestra. And in response to that opus, um, I was invited to a meeting with Beth Keller Long, the vice president of the Minnesota Orchestra, and we had a really great conversation about some of the DEI diversity um equity and inclusion um, initiatives that, that, that are going on with the Minnesota Orchestra. Uh, she gave me a slight uh, sneak peek into uh, what they have planned for next season. Um, the uh, the composers that are featured uh, do represent um, a little bit more diversity. You know, Beth herself admitted to me that it's not as diverse as she would like. So um, while she isn't um, the, the ultimate decision maker mm. in that regard, it's really, uh, really great for me to hear um, that the arts organizations, uh, both here in Minnesota and across the country, are really engaging these conversations and bringing speech to action, not just having the conversation, but making that conversation real and manifesting it in the way that uh, we share uh, this thing called classical music. I have to wonder about the ripple effect, too, because if uh, someone like Beth at the Minnesota Orchestra is listening to the Triloquy podcast, then certainly other arts organizations are doing the same and probably taking a few pages of notes out to... uh uh, to their meetings. And and one of those organizations uh, is the American Composers Forum. And mm-hmm. uh, shout out to Vanessa Rose. You know, uh, she has uh, played a big role in uh, some of the guests that uh, are on Triloquy and some of the networking that happens. I actually uh, met today's guest, Damien Strange, at a American Composers Forum uh, convening. And since we taped... Um, or since I had the conversation uh, with Damien that uh, you're going to hear uh, here in a few minutes, uh, he was actually named Director of Communications for the American Composers Forum. Hey. So once again, getting uh, people of color and people of diverse backgrounds into these leadership uh, positions so that real change can happen. And congratulations to Damien. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, huge congratulations to him. One of the things that we have explored uh, this month on Triloquy for Black History Month is the idea of what's wrong with Black History Month. What are some of the things that we aren't uh, really learning when it comes to black history? And this conversation um, applies to Damien. Um, 
uh, when it comes to uh, the opera he wrote about Alberta Williams King. I'm sure that's that might not be a name that you know <laughs> that that you King. know that King, sure, but yeah. not Alberta Williams King. So she was the mother of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Something that I think is really significant about her and her life is that, like Martin Luther King, she was also assassinated. She was assassinated uh, five or six years after uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Oh was. And, uh, you know, uh, again, this this part of black history that isn't always uh, celebrated or dug into or or just or taught to the younger generations that folks like Damien Strange, um, you know, he's he's unearthing that story through his set of gifts, which happens to be the composition of music. And now with him being um, in a really important role with the American Composers Forum, I'm sure um, that and many other conversations will, uh, will will begin to rise up, trickle up, if you will, and to the ether of classical music so that everything um, from Black History Month to women's history and, and, and everything uh, along that peripheral just become a more normal part uh, of the conversation. One of the uh, other things that I speak with uh, Damien about uh, is his upbringing in, in Washington, D.C. And, uh, you know, something that kind of tickles me is that uh, he was around so much blackness and the diversity of blackness and black music, he thought, you know, everything was black, including our favorite George Friedrich Handel. Didn't you? You were tickled by that, I'm sure. I, yeah, I thought, and what a cool perspective to hear because what you come up with. Uh, forms a lot of your tastes and your um, your ideas about how things work. So for him to grow up just thinking Handel was black, wow, I wonder what his reaction was when he found out. I suppose from a child's perspective or young person's perspective, why couldn't um, a black person have written something like The Messiah? Damien also goes into his relationship with blues and gospel and church music and really um, describes, you know, that church upbringing um, and that maternal upbringing, you know, that he got from his mother and his grandmother who was on the streets as an activist, you know, how he counts that as a formal part of his training. We don't always consider, um, you know, that part of, of our musical upbringing as formal, but he certainly does. And he's shifted the way um, I think about that. And w once again, I think you um, hear that beautifully in uh, the music that he has uh, composed, specifically in this case, the, uh, the, the music um, in honor of Alberta Williams King and um, in, the, in the stories he tells. And I'm sure ultimately in the new role that uh, he has with the American Composers form. So uh, once again, congratulations uh, to Damien Strange uh, for, for earning that position. Uh, congratulations to Vanessa Rose for having Damien Strange um, on her team at the American Composers Forum. And um, once again, I'll shout out Beth Keller Long from the uh, Minnesota Orchestra. Congratulations to them. Um, and thank you for engaging some of these conversations. Yeah, let's I don't, keep the dialogue going. I don't think we're done by any means because I'm not going to be happy until half of the programming is diverse. You know, um, but 
again, like we, we have to start somewhere. And um, I, I appreciate the movement um, that those organizations are, are making. Maybe there's an organization um, where you live that you feel like needs to be having more of these conversations. Uh, shout us out. Tell them um, about us. Tell us about them so that we can you know, spread what we're doing uh, as, as far as we can. So with all that in mind, um, how about we jump into the conversation with uh, Mr. Damien Strange. Damien Strange, it's such a pleasure to have you here on Triloquy. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, I'm honored to be on your show. You know, uh, we met um, at the American Composers Forum uh, convening. And um, I was on stage, you know, really trash and handle, and it looked like that got your attention. And for and, and for you to recognize um, how important and significant it is to call folks like Handel out for uh, their relationship to the transatlantic slave trade and all that sort of thing, you know, I, I was just really tickled that you also understood how um, important conversations like that are. And we're going to get into you um, and, and your music and, and talk a little about uh, Black History and Black History Month. But but just to get us started, um, are, are conversations like those uh, relatively new to you? Are these conversations that you've been having a long time, the the very historical relationship between the African diaspora and classical music? I would say it's, it's I think the frequency is, is new. Okay. <laughs> um, but it, it's also, it's always been something that, that I, I've kind of thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking about my experience in um, undergrad, um, I think those conversations, because of where I was and the music that I was trying to to write and, and be a part of, mm-hmm. um, those conversations um, started to sort of come up more frequently then. At that time, I didn't have a lot of answers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, the more uh, sort of knowledge I gained about history, um, and in particular coloni- colonialism, um, uh, sort of the more I had to to say about that, right? And and it's difficult because you know, and I talk about this all the time. I'm trained as a bassoonist. Mm-hmm. I'm not a musicologist. I'm not a historian. But because these stories and this bit of black music history is never taught in at the conservatory or at school, you know, it's up to us. You know, I I, I certainly think it's up to me to do what I can to unearth all of these stories and. Uh, to let people know and uh, to make them as uncomfortable as they feel along the way. That's their business. Right, right. <laughs> and, you know, this is someone, one of the things that I always appreciated about music, actually, and, and maybe even art in general, was the way it, it, it taught you about history. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always felt that I retained things better. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> If right. I could yeah. point to this musical period, oh, I understand that this war was happening <laughs> at right. this time or, or, or whatever. Um but one of the things that I began to notice was that how was how whitewashed <laughs> that history of uh, of music was. Yeah, so when absolutely. You, when you say you know Handel, like you're only getting the the thing that I knew about Handel was that he had depression, like me. He, yeah. He, you know, and that he wrote um, you know Messiah in in two weeks and and things like that. But to understand his relationships 
in his business practices, like that wasn't a part of and, and the story. How, and how he cultivated the capital that he did to mm-hmm. make writing the Messiah possible in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, I- I- anyway, <laughs> that's, 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 that's how we met. Yes. Um, and, and we're going to talk about, uh, uh, we're, we're going to close out uh, this opus with an excerpt from an opera you wrote. Uh, but but first, before we, before we do all that, I want to ask you something that um, I have planned on asking um, all of the Triloquy guests for um, Black History Month. From your perspective, what is wrong with Black History and Black History Month and the way um, it's been dealt with, you know, since we were kids and, and as we were growing up? Yeah. Wow. That's a big, uh, a big question. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that is wrong with Black History Month is that it hasn't really evolved. Okay. You know, um, it, 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 it feels still very much like the Black History Month that uh, I celebrated in elementary school in, in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Um, and, and in that it, it is it is very sort of surface level. You know, um, we get the same sort of uh, the same characters uh, every year. Um, and, and even those stories that we tell about the same characters are, are not very deep. Right. You know, um, and, and in a sense, you know, Black History Month, uh, continues to be sort of very colonial based and, 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 and whitewashed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, aside from not ha- having the full, like, sort of depth and breadth of, of blackness, um, being a part of it. Um, you know, we often leave out uh, our our queer um, brothers and sisters, women. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, you mentioned that opera, um, Mother King. The whole reason that opera was written was because I knew nothing about Martin Luther King's mother. <laughs> wow. And I've never really thought about that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's that's incredible to think about. Um, but you mentioned Washington, uh, D.C. Mm-hmm. and uh you know how how growing up there, you had a certain perspective on uh, Black History and Black History Month, even Black music. Um, D.C. You know, I grew up thinking of D.C. as dark city, chocolate mm-hmm. city. So, um, for me, there was this assumption that uh, education, uh, educational practices, and and the way you looked at music history, Black uh, music history, and all that would uh, would be from that Black. Uh, perspective, but you know, as as time goes on, we're we're seeing Washington D.C. Um, change and evolve into something that I'm sure you might not even recognize anymore. Uh, when I go home, it's you know, I, I I can't even go home to my my family home one <laughs> um, because we are you know due to the sort of economic situation and social economic sort of climate in D.C. Uh, we no longer have that yeah. you know that home, um, but but certainly. It it's not like that chocolate city that I grew up in uh, in the late seventies and eighties, um, and and it, it, it kind of makes me sad, uh, obviously, uh, to not feel like my home is my home anymore. Right. Um, but it's it certainly certainly shifted. Um, one of the earliest things that I I saw, because um, I have a, a sister who's sixteen years younger than me. Oh wow. Okay. Um, so I. You know, I got to see my elementary school sort of begin to change over in terms of who was instructing um, students there. Hmm. Um, you know, Teach for America came in uh, sure. to Washington, D.C. And for the most part, the teachers that 
ended up in D.C. did not look like the population. <laughs> I have a thousand bones to pick with that organization. That's for another episode. <laughs> and I had friends in it. So I, yeah, you know, me too. Yeah. But, you know, when I went to my sister's school, I'm just like, you know, when you're getting, say, black history at, at a school, which, you know, I will say that was one of the things about growing up in D.C., is that going to an AME church one and then going to a predominantly black um, grade school, like those teachers, like black history was was not like February. It, it was just history. It, it was, was just history. Yeah. Right? That, it was just taught like history. Yeah. And I noticed that, that stark contrast because in seventh grade, I went to a, a private school, a scholarship to a private school. And, and so I... I I immediately recognized the difference. Like, yeah. you know, at my elementary school, Black History Month was February. Right. <laughs> like right. 28 right. days. Right. But in, in at Raymond Elementary School, it was all year round. And and it was all about like really like seeing ourselves as as the future, as uh the the um uh people who were inheriting um this this legacy. Right. Right. That's that's the way it was um, taught in my elementary school. I'm wondering if uh, you know this old DC, this Black DC, um, had a had a big impact on your early uh, musician days. How mm. you were introduced to uh, music and and music performance. Yeah, so I think when you get when you're in a city like Washington DC or any other like other chocolate cities, like um, you are aware of sort of the the scope or breadth of blackness yeah. more, you know, there, um, that was one thing that was, was really clear, um, about DC. And, and, you know, once I came here, um, at the age of 18, that, that was different. I, I like the, the type of music that I was exposed to, um, because of that sort of that breadth and that spectrum of blackness, um, was, you know, did did influence who who I was. Like going to an AME church that had a, you know a straight up gospel choir, sure, um, but then also had this grand cathedral choir that performed <laughs> Handel's Messiah every really. <laughs> you know, huh. we we okay. had that range of music even in my in my church every. I, I was going to say every Sunday, but that's a lie because I was there like three times a week. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, but but you know that I had that right there in, in my church. You know, you you had like sort of that that firm spirituals foundation acquired that just sang like those spirituals and had that. Then you had like the straight up like gospel, you know, coming out of like the um, you know mid century um, um, gospel or writers and choirs, and then you had. Um, you know, the organist that I grew up with at my church, Philip McIntyre, was, you know, a virtuoso and he was invited to play all across the city and, and all across the country as a as a classical organist. So he had that cathedral choir playing sort of that canon of classical music, cl- classical anthems and, and yeah. hymns. Um and and so that that very much told me that all of this music was mine. Right. And and I think I even told you uh in a in a conversation that we had um later after after meeting that um the first time I heard Handel's Messiah, 
Like, I didn't know Handel was... You didn't know he was not black. I didn't know he was not black. Okay. Because, you know, again, not, not knowing that me. history, that was not in the, the program notes. Right, right. Yeah, they left that out. They left that part out. And so I'm listening to this, uh, you know, this black choir um, with a black orchestra, again, this being Washington, D.C., um, and black soloists sing this music, and I'm five, and I'm just like, oh, well, this is black music. Right. So that music was my music, you know. Same with Go-Go, the mm-hmm. music of D.C. Yeah. That's my music, too. Yeah. Um, you know, hardcore, like, rock. Sure. That's my music, too. That yeah, was D.C. Yeah, because you saw black people doing it. In D.C., you saw that happening, you know, in the late uh, the late 70s, early 80s, and, and throughout the 80s, in fact. And so... My idea was like all of this was um, was obtainable for me, you know, all, all of this music. And so I, I didn't have to restrict, you know, the type of music that I wanted to perform um, or uh, the type of music that I wanted to explore. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, did, I didn't have those boundaries put on me. So beyond being exposed to classic styles of music uh, in the church, like... You know, I would say most black people are, mm-hmm. you know, uh, at least, you know, our, our age. Uh, were, were you exposed to music in other ways? I wonder if you were a legacy musician in, mm. in any way. Did you have a musical set of parents or grandparents? Yeah, well, you know, thinking again about my church experience, my mom mm-hmm. um, certainly uh, grew up in, uh, or, well, she grew up in a church as well, the AME Church, and, and she, from a very young age, um was told that she had a beautiful voice, which was true. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I might be a little biased, but you know, I heard from others. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure it was quite beautiful. Right. <laughs> if, if I know black church mothers, oh yeah, the way I think I know them. <laughs> right. And so I grew up listening to her um, sing from from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, um, she was you know she performed um, in R and B bands and soul bands uh, for much of my uh, my childhood. Um, so that was a part of, uh, you know, some my musical introduction and upbringing, um, aside from my church. Um, and but then my great grandfather also was a musician um, and was apparently, uh, from the stories I've been told, um, was a pretty uh, popular drummer around town. Okay. Um, he had even played, you know, with Duke Ellington. Oh and wow! Was, you know, taken under taken under um, Ellington's wing. As a as a young performer, um, before Duke went off, you know, <laughs> yeah, and got all famous, <laughs> got all famous um, and infamous too. Yeah, inf- <laughs> right. So apparently, my great grandfather was uh, re- relatively infamous. As well. <laughs> okay, they were both out there in the streets. Out all right. there in the streets, uh, <laughs> and uh, I think that was one reason why my my great grandmother, who basically introduced me to like formal music training. Um, was uh she did that so that I had a a well-rounded cultural experience sure. in education. I don't think she ever planned on me uh following in her ex-husband's okay. <laughs> yeah. <path. laughs> okay, so you, this sounds like some family drama here. Okay. So, uh and and again, because you saw black people performing all of these different types of music, mm-hmm. you had no reason to think that it didn't belong to you just as much so when when you were first getting uh into that formal training uh was it vocal was it instrumental yeah so um my 
first real formal training, again, outside of church, because mm-hmm. you can't discount the formal training that you get. Amen. <laughs> um, right. Um, was with the D.C. Youth Orchestra Program. Okay. Um, and it was somewhere around the same time uh, that, you know, I remember hearing um, Handel's Messiah that I started playing the, the viola. Okay, a viola. Was, All right. <laughs> now I wouldn't call myself a viola. <laughs> I was a five-year-old to, okay. to nine-year-old who took lessons. Okay. Hey, hey, <laughs> you can play it better than I can. I'm sure. I found that strings were not my thing. <laughs> so you moved on to winds moved, or brass? Uh, winds. Okay. Uh, at that time, I think it was like some prevailing thought that um, you had to be nine or. Your lungs were developed enough at the age okay, of nine to play to, a band instrument. Yeah, exactly. So okay. I had to wait until I was nine to to actually play what I really knew that I wanted to play, which was a wind instrument. And which one did you choose? I I ended up being uh, choosing clarinet. Okay. Uh, I would say it chose me. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to play trumpet. Mm-hmm. The trumpet class was full. Yep. I wanted to play sax. And there were no more saxophones to rent oh. from the D. So, clarinet was the next option. Yeah, um, and I, you know, at the time, I didn't think the clarinet was very, very cool instrument. Um, but, you know, that was one of the things again that was kind of stripped from my own history or right. education. Um, that this was actually a jazz instrument. Yeah, and actually, oh, there was absolutely. Like, yeah, you know, um, that came much later um, in my my own education. Um, but I played it. I played it for uh, a few years in the D.C. Youth Orchestra program and then eventually made my way to, to saxophone. Oh, so you did end up playing saxophone eventually. I did. Oh, I okay. Did. Started um, age 12 um, playing uh, tenor sax. And um, I think um, that's when my mom was like, hey, <laughs> hey, Damien, <laughs> come here. Let me let me show you this uh, this this." This woman that has a beautiful voice, and I sing her music all the time, which is Anita Baker. Oh yeah, shout out to her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I actually, I was like, wow, this is this is amazing. You know, her her voice was you know really sort of like silky and like and powerful still at the same time. And um and Anita Baker had some some amazing sax players. Oh yeah, <laughs> at least on that Rapture album, uh, that was. Uh, and my mom was like, "Can you play what this guy is playing?" So she just played the track, yeah. And I'd be like, "Yeah, I think I can figure that out." <laughs> so you were at you were at home working on your Anita Baker excerpts. I was okay. I was. Well, that's beautiful. <laughs> that was the beginning. And then after you know spending all of so uh, you know so much of your development uh, studying music, did you decide you know that it was going to be what you did for a living, or or did that sort of happen later on? No. I kind of even when I was playing that, that viola that I didn't really understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind of knew that music. A lot of violists don't understand it either, <laughs> but that's another conversation. Anyway, <laughs> ah, violists always get you know get it that, and so that's another reason why I'm glad that I switched to sax. <laughs> there aren't as many saxophone jokes, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Um, even then, I kind of knew that music was my thing, and and even not just like sort of playing other people's music like I, I think even at that time when I was practicing uh or running through my lessons um I was just like ah this isn't as fun I really just want to hmm. I want to make up my own stuff like yeah. why can't I just like play this thing <laughs> you know right. this lick or whatever um at, at this time so even then I like kind of wanted to just do my own thing sure <laughs> musically sure 
So how did that manifest? You're wanting to do your own thing. Well, going back to my mom, um, you know, I think she recognized that that in me. And, and particularly once I started playing saxophone, like I did do that a lot more. And mm-hmm. I think her having her like say, hey, listen to what this sax guy is playing on this Anita Baker track and, and try to play it um, sort of sort of helped me develop my ear. Right. Like, I don't think my ear was being developed. Um, in my other uh, the other aspects of my formal training, but but this was developing my ear, and the more that I did that, the more I heard like different melodies in my head, and I was trying to play them. Yeah. Um. And and even even writing songs, like me and my brother would kind of sit <laughs> in our backyard and and start writing songs around that yeah. time too. Yeah. Um. And she recognized that, and she was like, "Oh, so." Let me teach you a little bit about song structure. <laughs> like, you know, Let me get I, y'all together a yeah, little bit. Like, here's a ver- this is how a verse works. Here's our chorus, pre-chorus or bridge. And she kind of gave me that sort of formal training on, on songwriting. Yeah. yeah. You know, as I listen to you, as I listen to you describe your upbringing and, you know, all of the of the blackness that uh, was your life in Washington, D.C., you know, when it comes to music and and, and black history uh, and everything else, I can't help but to uh, be a little envious because uh, me and so a few other uh, black folk that have dedicated our lives to classical music really have that background. Mm. And you decided to leave it all behind uh, in moving to Minnesota. To go to college. Mm-hmm. So what what ha- what happened there? How did how did you end up in the Great White North? <laughs> well, <laughs> let's see. So, hmm. So for uh, I think I mentioned from I think from seventh grade to twelfth grade, I, I attended um, a small private school um, in in DC called the Murray School. Uh, it's like six hundred kids from K through twelve. Very different than the public schools, which mm-hmm. had class classroom sizes of like thirty two. <laughs> right. Uh, my my largest class uh, ever in that in um, from seventh to twelfth grade was fifteen, <laughs> um, and I think you know, and and even to this day, like the DC public schools aren't aren't the best uh, in in the nation, and you know my um, my great grandmother uh, was of this generation uh, that was actually very strongly like and proudly black. But also had this aspiration of whiteness. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, um, and 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 so that's that's what it was, right? So the the whole the the aside from like DC public schools not being the top schools in the nation, um, going to um, a, a private school was this like ne- this step up, yeah, right? You know, and and. You know, she had spent a lot of her adult life um, nannying for um, one family, a white family, a white family uh, in the in the suburbs of of DC, and and she saw those kids go through private schools and then go to Ivy League, mm. and that's what she that's what she wanted for her excellence was leaving this place yes. and going to okay yeah and yeah. and and that's what fueled your decision yeah. Yeah, partly, you know, I um I mean because you know, we 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 talk all the time about leaving home mm-hmm. and 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 going to these big schools, but if if blackness, if if being black in America um has 
an Ivy League connected to it. It's the school that was right where you yeah. were from. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And so um, I did apply. Ha- ha- Howard, for those Howard, of you yes, who don't yes. know. Howard the University. <laughs> <laughs> the real HU. You know, there's also like this little bit of, of rebellion um, that has uh, a little bit to do with it as well. You know, growing up in D.C., at the time I grew up in D.C., um, was a challenging period uh, in 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 that the story of that city. Yeah. Um, you know, growing up in uh, D.C. in the 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 eighties um, after you know Reagan was elected, um, you know the the city to, was was definitely taking a, a downturn. Um, uh, we saw uh, in my community, which was a traditionally sort of middle class um, or working class black community. Um, was you know from sixth grade through I would say like ninth grade I saw like sort of the the fabric of the community being pulled sure you know, little thread by by this like a little thread of of crack you know cocaine yeah um all of a sudden around the block there's like three crack houses yeah. you know where there were like middle class families like raising kids um so you know by the by the eighty six it was full blown. Um, sort of epidemic uh, of both drug use and and violence, so I could say my neighborhood, like again, given the history, it was like again by the time I was in like eleventh grade, like I helicopters flying overhead, you know, shining into my bedroom, automatic gunfire, you know, in the alley, there there was stuff like that going on, um, and you know even as a um, high schooler, I was just like, well, there, there must be something I can do to stop this or, or to prevent this. And, and I did. Like, I, I worked, um, you know, really hard in my community. My great-grandmother, uh, again, was a, was a community organizer. And so we were out in the streets, like, trying to do that work. Um, but it was still, it was so, um, it was demoralizing <laughs> in the sense to have, to, to see what the neighborhood was, yeah, and what it had it had become, um, and and that kind of takes a toll on you too. Um, yeah, Howard. It, yeah. Well, I was just gonna ask: Is, is your uh, great grandmother still living? No, she um she she went to be with the ancestors. It's almost uh, ten years now. Oh well, and she. I mean, because I think about you know you describe her as a community activist mm-hmm. and, and someone who is very much aware of blackness and its rich heritage and culture, mm-hmm. but at the same time, yeah. someone who measured excellence with that white ruler. You know, all the way to your ended up uh, ended up being a, a college student far away in 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 Minnesota. Yeah, you know what um what sorts of uh, jobs uh. Led, because right now you're with the uh, Twin Cities Media Alliance, yeah. correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious about uh, how, you know, your your idea of music and then, you know, your need to work and then putting together these two uh, worlds. How did that lead to your uh, current position? Mm, yeah, that's a that's a really good question. My if you saw my full CV, you'd be like, well, who is this dude? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <I> was <laughs> Bartender. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was uh, at, right out of college. I was uh, just, just trying to <laughs> pay McAllister back. Oh. Uh, so I, you know, I had, I, <laughs> yeah. I taught preschool for a few years while still doing music, playing in, in bands. Uh, I worked uh, 
at front of front of the house at the Ordway. <laughs> it's a yeah. doorman and usher. Yeah. Um, big this, uh, big uh, music uh, venue here yeah. in St. Paul. That's where the uh, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra plays for yeah, folks who don't Minnesota know. Minnesota Opera. Yeah. Um, and so I got to see those for free, which oh, was nice. another you know benefit of of doing that type of work because I didn't want to be um, as a poor. Uh, undergrad graduate yeah you know trying to pay back this private school <laughs> i didn't it, have a lot of capital it, it's a wonder you didn't uh man i feel like we could we could really talk for a long time about so many things you're saying but right now what i'm thinking about is um again that origin of blackness mm-hmm. in all musical genres and then you're being a doorman at the Ordway. you did that is not a black space no. if, if i can just say it, it's amazing that you didn't jump ship at that point yeah Oh, boy. You know, again, I I think having the experience that I had um, growing up in a black city like D.C., but then also going to a school like Murray, um, which had a very low percentage of black students at the time, learning how to swim in whiteness sure <laughs> it became a skill of mine yeah i couldn't really swim that well in water but <laughs> in being in white spaces uh, i think that private school experience actually prepared me for that we because we just have to adapt you have That's to what adapt it is. but but anyway, I, I got you off track so <laughs> uh you know you were teaching preschool you uh uh got a job uh at the ordway mm-hmm. um and then i did some like some like political work um, and I think eventually I was just like, well, there are these two areas that I, I really love, um, which is like music and arts in mm-hmm. general, and then like community work. So that's where I should be, should be looking. Um, and so I think eventually I got a, you know, a job working, um, with ACORN, which was an organization that doesn't exist anymore. Okay. Uh, but it uh, was the Association for Community Organizations for Reform now. It was basically like a union for for communities. Mm-hmm. Like this, like if there was a, com- a community issue and um, a challenge in your community, like you could, ACORN could help organize you to take action um, and to sort of uh, change the situation in your community. Right, um, right. Through that, I had many jobs sort of in that area mm. and had connections to community organizations and things like that. And so um, I just started doing that type of work. Um, I, I worked on the marriage um, amendment campaign here okay. in 2012, um, which, again, kind of continued to grow that network. Um, and so um, that year, the following year, I was a part of this program at, at Wilder, which is an organization here. Um, that has a foundation, um, and they just so happen to have this program that is a national uh, national program called um, the Shannon Institute uh, for Renewal. Um, and because I was kind of lost, <laughs> I was like, I have these two things: I have this music, music community you, activism, but, yeah, yeah. And and so that that program helped me sort of find my path, you know, and and really helped me focus in on core values, which um, which were really about family. Um, service to community um, and authenticity, and so I, I kind of honed in on those things when looking for jobs yeah. in, in my path, and that that really helped me out. Um, and so I I was on the board of um, Metro Regional Arts Council, um, which is a, a Twin Cities uh, 
local arts organization that funds gets uh, public funds to to fund artists uh, and arts programming in uh, in the Twin Cities here, and um, that actually really opened up my eyes to how I could sort of use um, what I know and in, in my experience. Um, when I when I joined that board, there weren't a lot of people of color sure. <laughs> on it um, in a city that was growing, um, that those uh, numbers were growing, that those populations were growing. And um, I would sit in, in panels and recognize that that perspective was also not at the table um, when deciding who was getting funds sure. uh, in the Twin Cities. And that was one thing that I knew, that, knew I had to change. Um, and and so um, I wanted, you know, by the time I left in six years, for there to be at least, you know, more people <laughs> of color. <laughs> right. J- just so that the perspective is there. Yes. And, and j- just so that you know that, you know, there are parts of the conversation that maybe would be hidden if mm-hmm. it were if there were no black folks involved or, right. you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, which is it's very important. Uh, yeah. It, uh, that table, <laughs> that seat at the table, in some ways, is important for that for that very reason. Just right. to have that that perspective, even if it doesn't change everything, because it still took a little while. <laughs> right. For things to change, you know, because here we are a few years after my last year on the board, um, and now um, the ED of the organization is um, is a Asian woman. Um, and the the numbers on the board have have changed dramatically, and you know if you look at the panel because I've, I've been invited back to be on panels. Um, last year, uh, I was on the panel for the Next Step Fund, which is an opportunity here for artists to to fund their next big leap as uh, in their career. Um, it was the first time in all the panels that I've ever sat on in Minnesota, and I've been invited to be on a lot, mm-hmm. um, that the majority of people on that panel were, um, you know, Asian, African-American, yeah. <laughs> Latinx folks at the table. I think there was one white person <laughs> out of 10, maybe. I think there's 10 at that table. And that perspective can be important, yeah. you know, not not to diminish the no, importance no, 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 of no. that. But ag- again, recognizing that historically speaking, yes. we haven't always been in those conversations and with the seat at the table. Absolutely. And the conversation was very different. Yeah. You know, taking time because you only have a certain amount of time to sort of if you have to interject some cultural ref- relevance or reference that some people may not get. Yeah. You know, you only have like five minutes <laughs> right. with like 10 people at the table to do that. And and not that that didn't happen because, you know, there are other cultural aspects that, you know, people are, are parts of identity that you, you still have to kind of talk about. But the conversation was very different um, this time around. And so I felt like I achieved my goal. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so I, even ap- before that, I looked for other opportunities to do that. Uh, in uh, uh, here in the Twin Cities. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the community you currently um, mm-hmm. live in. So um, it, it's happening all across the country, as it happened uh, in your native Washington, D.C., communities that um, are traditionally black communities or communities of color, um, you know, are gentrified, for, mm-hmm. for lack of a, a, a better phrase. You know, on the last opus, um, I spoke with uh, Paviel, who is a native of the Rondo community. Currently, you live in a part of a uh, town 
um, known as Frogtown. And uh, and before we cut on the mics, I, uh, I talked to you a little bit about a mural in Frogtown that says development without um, displacement. Is there a place in that conversation of uh, maintaining community that ties in with music or, or the mm-hmm. or the work you do that, you know, sort of converges community activism with music? Yeah, I would say, you know, um, and, and maybe it's even broader than, than music, but I think the arts, um, it, having arts be a part of that conversation is, is very important. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I really appreciated about Frogtown um, and, you know, my wife and I are, are we're transplants. So we were trying to decide where, where we did want to live mm-hmm. um, and, you know, our experience in the Twin Cities told us that, you know, Frogtown and Rondo were the places for, you know, you know, people of color in, in, the, in, the, in the Twin Cities. Um, and uh, that's, that's why we settled on, on, on Frogtown. But one of the things that I really appreciated about Frogtown was how they do integrate um, art into their community development. You know, the Frogtown Neighborhood Association uh, has, since I've known them, like really use artist organizers uh, as a way of getting information out there, bringing people together and uh, discussing um, the issues uh, that um, are affecting um, the community. And validating all parts of that community, yes. even the musicians, especially yeah. the musicians, yeah. because that's how that's how history is told. That's how our culture has uh, spread uh, across generations and, yeah. and, and how it's preserved, really. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, when you look at Frogtown, Frogtown is often like a first um, stopping place for uh, for immigrants coming in, yeah. uh, refugees and immigrants. So you have that rich um, that history of like the Hmong community being there and the music that that they have. Um, uh, and, and actually, recently, um, I did um, sort of call, uh, curate a, a program at uh, Cedar Cultural Center here o- over in Minneapolis um, that was bringing Rondo and Frogtown um, musicians together to perform. Um, and one of the performances was, uh, I was I was so happy when this happened. It's like I didn't want to force things on people. Right. <laughs> I just invited them to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, we had a performance um by um, uh, Two Psych Lee, uh, who is a poet uh, and hip hop artist um, that grew up in Rondo community or in um, Frogtown community, mm-hmm. um, and for his performance, he brought in um, performers playing traditional wind instrument from among uh, uh, traditional wind instrument. Oh wow! Which I had seen like almost uh, seven years ago at a performance, and I just I was like. One day I'm going to curate something that will feature feature this instrument, and and so he mixed that with hip hop, you know, and and so that's what you see in Frogtown, you know, you see, uh, sort of people holding on to their traditions and also like, like experimenting with those traditions, and that, and that's, um, so you have like a Davu Seru who yeah. who lives also like like a few blocks from me, yeah. um, amazing, um. I don't want to call it jazz, um, but some people might call it jazz. It's just black music, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, uh, that classical music, Classi- even classic yeah, classical. to us. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and folks like that, 
um, a growing Sudanese community. My neighbors are, are from Sudan. Oh wow, yeah. Um, in my, in fact, in my block alone, I have like um, immigrants from uh, Central America, um, from from Ecuador, from Mexico, um, from Su- uh, Sudan, from Eritrea, like just in my block. Yeah. Um, and 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 they all bring their own cultural and sound or, or culture and sound. Um, to to that that neighborhood, um, and that's and that to me is what's special about Frogtown, and and that, so I what I think what happens is that people see that that flavor and that color, and they want to be around it, right? Yeah. So they want to move to to where that is that seasoning that seasoning, right? <laughs> and so that's that's what we see now, and and what quite uh, quite often happens is that there is like this thing. That sort of drives that, yeah. And for Frogtown, um, it's uh, the light rail um, that was built um, just a few years ago, um, and um, and so we see now this sort of this change in the community. Uh, so first, you sort of see um, that light rail come in, and then you see like restaurants, <laughs> you know, pop up, a yoga shop um, pop up. And then, then a just, coffee shop, the then coffee a, shop, you know, all and, of the usual suspects, and and not usually by local businesses or right. businesses that you know have been there for years. In fact, that um, the the mural that you mentioned, it's on it's on the wall of a business that just announced that they'll be closing. Oh wow! Um, and I think they've been there for thirty plus years uh, in that location, uh, barbecue uh, spot, uh, black owned, um, and so that. Um, that corner is going to be developed. <laughs> wow. And, you know, that business couldn't afford to sit out and wait, um, you know, whatever, 18 months or whatever without business to, to go back into that spot. Um, so they're being displaced, ironically. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's it's easy, again, to ask the question, what, you know, what does music, how can the arts um, impact uh you know the uh, the the stopping of this sort of change. You know, mm-hmm. pre- preserving communities, and you know, based on uh, all of the work uh, that you've done and that uh, you continue to do, I think the answer to that is is obvious. I, I, I wish we had, you know, two more hours to to sit here and chat. Mm-hmm. But um, but uh, uh, if anyone is interested in uh, learning more about you and, and your work, I'll definitely. Um, uh, have links to your website and all right. that available in the description. Uh, before I let you go, how about you um, tell me a little bit about uh, the piece of music that uh, you brought in um, and also shout out uh, the performers. Yeah. Um, so initially, I, we, we had talked about um, the opera Mother King mm-hmm. um, and doing a piece from that. And then I found out that my um, uh, the, the person who played Martin Luther King's mother had just gotten a job in London. Oh, <laughs> wow. was not going to be here. Um, so I wanted to bring in a, a piece that was really relevant to the conversation. Um, and this piece is uh, called Dream Variations. Um, and it's a piece, um, it was the first piece I wrote when I got back into uh, composing because I had taken time off. Um, but one of the things that I had found out was that, you know, I had spent so much time, like, again, sort of focusing on sort of whiteness, and that included the stories that I was telling or sure. seeking to tell in my, my story. 
and I had to go back to my my roots um, and in like who what artists um, sort of formed who I was or who I became as a as a man. And um, when I thought about that, I, I could only think of um, Lang- Langston Hughes. Um, and I remember uh, in third grade um, in Mr. Allen's uh, class um, having to memorize uh, Mother, uh, Mother's Your Son. Hmm. Uh, and that was the first poem I ever memorized. That wasn't a church poem. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, scripture. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a psalm or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Uh, this was like the first one. Um, and I I felt so connected to the story um, and, and to the poet. And uh, so Langston Hughes actually lived in D.C. for a little bit. Right. And, yep. and funny enough, he the private school that I went to, he actually bust at this big hotel that's right down the hill. <laughs> it's okay. I walked by it every day. Yeah. It's like Langston Hughes used to, you know, work there. Um, but this, uh, his dream poems were always um, poems that stood out in my mind. Um, people may know, um, you know, sort of a, a Dream Deferred. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a very popular one, yeah. um, which is in the, the full um, piece. But this one, um, the piece that you'll hear um soon is um a section of dream variations that includes the poem dream variation the text from that poem and a little bit of the poem um dream keeper and then uh devon russell gray uh yeah. is at the piano who's uh, been featured on a opus of triloquy who's the uh, who's the singer here um sarah greer um who is a singer that i've worked with um she actually premiered this piece with me back in 2011 um and also um played uh Martin Luther King, uh, sort of uh, Alberta Williams' uh, mother in uh, Mother King. Yeah. So we've worked together a lot. She's an amazing improviser and uh, and uh, vocal educator in town. And and then of course you know uh, Mother King. I'm sure you know to kind of pull this back around full circle. Uh, you know your training as a musician and as an activist that came from your great grandmother. Mm-hmm. Surely you know that sort of maternal relationship that you had you know played a role in the composition of this piece of music yeah absolutely mother king was really all about um well one the idea that i mentioned earlier is that like how come we don't know who martin luther king's mother is yeah and and so many other mothers um that that really often in our community are doing like the hard the hard work um without a lot of um praise and and so mother king uh was uh, an opera uh, that I wrote with um, librettist um, Vanessa Fuentes, um, who's a local um, poet and, and author. Um, and we were just sitting down one day um, after we had seen Selma uh, and talking about how great Selma was and how timely it was when it, yeah. when it came out. Um, but also saying, hey, so how come they didn't like focus a little bit more on some of the women <laughs> yeah how come that keeps happening yeah and we both like as both of us being activists and organizers like well how do we take action on that right right <laughs> and right. so you know she was just like well i know that you're working at an opera about mlk because that's what i was doing and she was like what do you know about his mom yeah and i was just like well i know this and i know she was an organist and like blah 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 she's like did you know she was assassinated too and I was like, and sure enough, she was yeah. at Ebenezer. How is there? Only, I mean, you look it up, folks. Go out there and look it up. There's like two articles uh, about this 
Wow. On every, you cannot find anything else about this. I mean, it seems so big. This was this was like a woman who raised Martin Luther King, who was tragically struck down, also struck down after lo- already losing another son to a drowning. Again, we talk about water too. Yeah, we can get into that too. But like, how come we don't know this about Mar- um, Alberta Williams King? And you know, uh, and again, coming back to one of the first questions I asked you, what's wrong with Black History? What's wrong with Black History Month? This is one of the things. Yeah. It's one of those questions and one of those uh, topics that we just don't explore. Um, that you know, thanks to you, we're uh, we're beginning to, and we're beginning to uh, have those conversations. Yeah. Um, Damien. Uh, we're, I'm, I'm gonna have to have you back. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. We're come gonna back. Uh, and, and we'll fun. we'll tie Scott in next time to get some of his takes. But again, thank you so much for the work you do. Uh, thanks for being on this opus of Triloquy, and uh, and thanks so much for uh, sharing this music. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Gary. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.